Turn to your Bibles, Luke chapter number 11, this, uh, this evening, Luke chapter 11. He mentioned Ron Hamilton, and, um, you know, as he said, uh, Ron Hamilton just went home to be with the Lord not too long ago. Uh, the story I heard, and you know how these stories go, I might have a few little details, a little sideways on some things, but was that Ron Hamilton, when he was a young man, uh, he loved music, and he had a desire to, uh, to be able to be a great composer. And he loved work, pieces of work like Mandel, Handel's Messiah and, and great opuses. And, and he had this real desire to compose these, these great glorious songs. And um, God never opened the door to be, for him to be able to do that. He, if I'm not mistaken, got cancer. And that's what he lost his eye to. And it greatly hindered his ability to study music and, and hindered his health and things of that sort. But they say one time he was in a church and it was after he had lost his eye and he was wearing the eye patch that one of the little kids came up to him and asked if he was a pirate. And uh, he answered and he said, uh, he said, I am. You can just call me Patch the Pirate. And from that was born a children's ministry that touched untold millions of lives of young people. And... Um, you know, Handel's Messiah and things like that, they have their place. And uh, certainly, especially in other generations, they've been used to touch many lives. But I think you could say almost without dispute or debate that the ministry of Patch the Pirate has done far more to change the lives of human beings than Handel's Messiah ever did. And, you know, undoubtedly, the pride that lives in every man, so it lived in Ron Hamilton as well, if he had known that was the path that God was going to plot for him, the course would have probably thought, well, I don't want to do something that small. But isn't it amazing how God can take small things and do mighty things with it? Uh, we're not preaching on it tonight, but the Old Testament prophet asked the question, you know, who, who hath despised the day of small things? And, you know, we don't like small things. We don't like our ministries to be small. We don't like our, our scope of influence to be small. We don't like the power and, and, and reputation we have to be small because we want glory on ourselves. But God is able to shrink the glory upon us to heap the glory upon himself. As John said, he must uh, increase and I must decrease. And I think part of the reason he can't increase more is because we won't decrease more. But if we just be willing to say, now, Lord, whatever your will is for my life, I I'm content with it. If nobody ever knows who I am, if nobody ever cares who I am, but if you get glory out of my life, that'll be enough. If nobody's ever impressed by me or knows my name or any of those things, but Lord, if you're pleased with me, we might be amazed what God could do in our lives. And uh, Ron Hamilton will always and forever, at least in my heart and mind, be a reminder of that truth. Luke chapter number 11 tonight. Let's begin in verse number 1. Luke chapter 11, verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 13. Word of God says, It came to pass that as he, as Jesus, was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord... Teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth, or in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needed. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to them that ask it. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. I pray that you'd consecrate these lips and these words unto you tonight. 
Lord, may I just say what would please you? That's that's my heart's desire. That's my singular focus this evening. Let me speak correctly and rightly and let me please you in all that's said and done. I pray that our hearts would be open to the truth of the word of God. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. This passage of scripture begins with a very, very clear request on the part of one of Christ's disciples. When the Lord finishes praying, one of the disciples says unto him, Lord, teach us to pray. I don't know about you. That's a lesson I need. I need to be taught how to pray. I, you know, I think and I understand that there can be a danger in sort of of enshrining the concept of prayer as some sort of unattainable spiritual activity. I understand how to pray in the sense of I can talk to the Lord. But I don't just want to pray. I want to pray rightly. I want to pray in the right way. I want to pray in the right spirit. I want to pray for the right things in my life. And so, you know, I may know how to pray, but I want to know how to pray well. And the Lord in this passage of Scripture It's interesting his reply to this request. He immediately launches into a lesson for them on the topic and ideal and concept of prayer. They say, teach us to pray. He didn't say you're not capable. It's encouraging to me to know that I can pray if I'm willing to pray. It's encouraging to me to know that prayer is not beyond me if I'm willing to apply the tenets and truths of the Word of God to my prayer life. I've known people in my life, they seem to be very competent in prayer. But you know, I may never attain to their capability, but I still have a God that hears and answers prayers. And if I'll just engage in the activity of prayer, God will listen to my prayers. He'll listen to your prayers. The Lord didn't say, no, you're not able. He didn't say, no, you're not worthy. Now, that would have been, I think, a reasonable answer. Because who of us is worthy to talk to God? There are certain people, if you met them in life, you would feel cowed by being in their presence. You would think, what place or what business do I have talking to a person of this magnitude? But has it ever occurred to you that you are not just called, but you are commanded to talk to the God of glory? The God that created all things. Everything around us. Everything that was made was made by Him and for Him. And you get to talk to Him. What an amazing thing. Uh, If he had answered and said, no, you're not worthy, I don't think any of us could argue with that. I'm not worthy to talk to him. He could have said this. He could have said, no, you're not welcome. And I'll tell you this. If I had done, if, if God had done me the way I've done God, I wouldn't ever want to talk to him. If I had been treated by you the way that I have treated God, I wouldn't want to have nothing to do with you. And you wouldn't want to have nothing to do with me if the roles were reversed. He could have easily said, God is not interested in you. He doesn't care what you have to say. And he is not willing to hear you. But isn't it precious to know that our God cares what we're going through? We talked a little bit about it this morning in Deuteronomy chapter number 11. He careth for the land that we're dwelling in and our lives. And he's interested in us. The psalmist says he inclined his ear under my cry, has the idea almost, me and Brother Brandon were talking today, uh, whenever whenever my little Schofield talks to Brother Brandon, he hears uh, his little girl Clara because they both talk the same way. They're best friends and they talk the same way as each other do, which is barely intelligible most of the time. They'll talk and, and they get excited and they talk fast and they, they, and sometimes when you're listening to a little, a little fellow like that or, or listening to a, a little child like that, you can't hear them. I'll see my mom and dad, they'll do this. Uh, they'll, they'll lean, you might need to adjust their hearing it because they'll, they'll lean and they'll, they'll say, what? And they'll lean in. And what does that suggest to you when you see somebody do that? Somebody's talking to somebody else and they can't hear them and they lean in trying to listen. They're interested in what they have to say. They care about what they are getting ready. You know, the psalmist said he inclined his ear to my cry. The Lord could have said, no, you're not welcome, but he didn't. He said, the Lord wants to hear from you. God is so interested in you praying that he doesn't just teach you how to pray. 
He puts an advocate at the right hand of the Father to help you pray. He puts the Spirit of God within you to translate your prayers into something fit for the ears of God. He commands you to pray. Yea, He'll even chasten you if you won't pray. That's how interested God is in hearing from you. So this disciple asks, Lord, teach us to pray. And immediately the Lord begins to teach them several things about Prayer. Notice the first thing we have in this passage. There is a pattern for prayer. Now, I'm not going to dig too deep into this. You can go back and look. We've preached on it before. And I encourage you, if you're interested, to go do that very thing. But I just want you to notice very quickly that there are some things he says you ought to pray for. There are some things he does not take time to mention. Now, does that mean that we should not pray over other matters that are not contained within this? In other words, is this prohibitive or exclusive in nature? I don't think so. I remember one time hearing a story. Somebody was asking G. Campbell Morgan, the famous Bible teacher, he was doing a question and answer series after one of his lectures. And a young man stood up and asked him this question and said, Dr. Morgan, do you think we ought to pray about the small things in our life? And I'll never forget when I read this, he answered back, he looked at the young man and he said, let me ask you a question. What in your life could ever be big to God? In other words, if nothing in your life could be big to God, then nothing in your life could be small to God. And so I would say this, pray about small things. I mean, it ain't, listen, you've got more time than you'll avail yourself of in the prayer closet. Go ahead and pray about small things. Ask God to intervene on your behalf in those matters. But I do think it's instructive that though this is not a a, a prohibitive thought, he's not saying you can't pray for those things. It is interesting that he lists four categories of things that we should be praying for. Notice what we should be doing in our prayer. Notice the first thing in verse 2. He says this, that we ought to grant God the preeminence in our life. He said unto them, when you pray, say this, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Now, better preachers than me have deconstructed and carefully dissected this passage, noticing every little nuance, and I'll leave it to them, and and you can go and check them out and, and, and listen to their better sermons than this one. I just want to notice a general thought here, and that's this. The very first thing that he says we ought to do in prayer is put God in His proper place in our heart and in our life. What does he mean by... Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed means to consecrate something. If something is hallowed, it is not secular, it is not base, it is not normal, it is not common, but it is something that is special, that is unique, that is precious, and that is revered. He said when we pray, we ought to have it clearly in our head that we're praying to a precious God, a glorious God, a hallowed God, that one of the functions of prayer in your life and mine ought to be a better appreciation of the person and majesty of the Lord. You know, we could say much about this, but prayer does far more. And I do believe prayer changes things in ways that neither you nor I can explain. Prayer changes things. Uh, We have scriptural evidence of of prayer changing things, both in heaven and on earth, both uh, in regards to the actions and behavior of God, as well as in regards uh, to the orders of men. Prayer changes things. But I do recognize this truth, that prayer primarily, first and foremost, always changes the heart of the petitioner more than it changes anything else around. And one of the functions of prayer is to transform you and I more into the image of Christ. So it's interesting. The first thing he says is that prayer helps get our mind right. It helps get our, get, get our heart right. It gets us in a right perspective regarding the things that we're seeking. And so that very first thing that he says to pray about is all about putting God in a place of preeminence in our life. He denotes his paternal and and, and, and uh, loving, nurturing nature. He says our Father. He denotes his location, which are in heaven. He denotes his consecration, hallowed be thy name. He denotes his administration, thy kingdom come. Uh, he, he denotes uh, his interaction with mankind, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. And all of these things are geared towards the idea of saying, Lord, your God, I'm not, your will's best, your way's best, uh, your desire are best. And God, before I ever ask for anything, I just want you to know that I want you more than anything. It's all about granting God the preeminence. But then the second thing in this pattern of prayer that we ought to be engaging in, we ought to ask that God grant us provision. 
He says, give us day by day our daily bread. Uh, Is it appropriate to pray for our temporal needs? I believe it is. In fact, I would ask you this question. If you'd say, preacher, it's silly to pray about our temporal needs. Well, what's your solution for them? Steal or trust the government? (laughs) Labor and work. I'm for laboring and working. Don't misunderstand me. But listen, for the believer, what a nonsensical notion it is to suggest that it's somehow crass or unbiblical or base or carnal to pray for God to meet our temporal needs. He is our heavenly Father. I hope I'm, I hope I am the most emotionally satisfying father that ever walked the earth for my children. I hope they wake up every day and say, wow, glory to God. What a wonderful thing it is to wake up and be the child of Toby Weber. But you know what is probably more likely? That day by day they wake up and they see a daddy that loves them enough to put food on the table, to put clothes on their back, to meet those temporal needs. There'll come a day that they'll recognize, I hope anyways, the spiritual investment that's been placed in them. Right now, hey listen, they're sure enough appreciating those Christmas cookies. Amen? Nothing wrong with praying, God grant us our daily bread. If you want to be super spiritual and look at it and view it as us feasting on the Word of God, God bless you, I'm for you in doing that. I don't really believe that's what the Lord had in mind when he said this to his disciples. I think when he said that we ought to pray and ask God to give us day by day our daily bread, he thought, here's what I think they, he thought they thought about, they, bread. That's what. <laughs> you say, but preacher, the Bible's the word of life and, and, and the bread of, of, you know, of the word of God. That's true. Oh, but preacher Christ, he's the bread from heaven. He's the man who come down and the bread of life. That's true. But I think when he told them this, he had every full expectation that they think, I ought to pray for God to meet my needs, to put bread on my table and in my belly. You ought to be praying for God to grant you provision. Then verse 4, he notes this, that we ought to pray that God grant us pardon. He says this, when you pray, pray this way, forgive us our sins. We also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. I'll not get into the the, the details of why he says it in this way. And, and it's interesting when you compare Matthew's account of this and Luke's account of this, and I encourage you in your own time to do so. I just want to instead notice something really on the surface. He says this, when you pray, you ought to ask God to forgive you of the places you've erred against Him, of the things that you've done contrary to Him, of the sins you've committed, of the ways that you've walked contrary to Him. In other words, one of the things we ought to be praying about is the ways that we've disappointed the Lord and sinned against Him. Let me use this phrase. There ought to be a maintenance to our relationship with Him as a part of our prayer life. One of the things you should be asking God about and talking to God about is the ways that you have, have sinned and, and, and failed and done wrong and made mistakes and sometimes outright contradicted His command and desire and will for your life. And you ought to ask forgiveness. Now, there's some that would say, well, preacher, I don't have to ask for forgiveness. I ask for Him to save me. Well, you know, John is writing to believers in the book of First John. That's why he keeps saying, beloved, beloved, beloved. And he says, if we, if we, he don't say if y'all. He says, if we, uh, that tells me this, John knew sometimes he had to confess the sins he had committed to the Lord and forsake those things and ask God's forgiveness of them. I'm well aware of the distinction between positional and practical truth. I'm well aware of the concept of, uh, of, of uh, legal justification in the eyes of God. But I'm also aware that as his child, I can do things that are disruptive of my fellowship with him, that, uh, that displease him, that grieve him, that put a wedge between me and him. Just like, oh, I don't know, not any good Christian or anything, but somebody like John the Beloved, I also have to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, if you're not asking God's forgiveness when you sin in your life, that doesn't make your sins go away. That merely means sin lieth at the door. So you ought to be asking God to grant you pardon for the ways that you've erred from Him. And then look at the end of verse number 4. He says this, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We ought to be praying that God grant us protection in our life. God protect me from things. Now it's interesting. What does this mean, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Now some would say, well, what he's saying is that we ought to pray and ask God to not lead us to a place where we are tempted to sin. But you know, the book of James says that God cannot be tempted with sin, neither tempteth he any man with sin. 
So when it talks about temptation here, it's not talking about the solicitation to do evil uh, because the reality is with every temptation that we find, the solicitation to do evil, God will always make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God will never put you in a situation where your only choice is to sin. Now you may, Your flesh may have propagandized you into believing you had no choice but to sin, but that's a lie. You always had a choice to choose right and to do right no matter what your situation. So what does he mean when he says, lead us not into temptation? Well, he's using that word temptation, not as the solicitation to do evil, but as the sense of affliction, trial, difficult. And he's saying you ought to pray that God protects you from affliction in your life. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to walk unscathed through our life, not touched by difficulty, sorrow, and suffering. But it does mean it is a perfectly biblical thing to say, God, protect me. Protect my kids, protect my wife, protect my family, protect our home. If we're not seeking His help, whose help are we seeking? If we're not seeking His protection, whose protection are we seeking? And I don't know if you know this, but we live in a mean old world. It's only getting meaner. We better learn how to look to God for safety and protection. So He gives them a pattern for prayer. But then He moves on and deals with three separate truths concerning prayer in this class of prayer that he is giving. The first is he gives a parable. The second is he gives what we could call a metaphor. And the third, he gives us what we could call an illustration. And he uses these three concepts to communicate three important but distinct truths regarding prayer in our life. I want you to notice them with me this evening. Look at first at this parable that the Lord gives. I guess we could call it a parable. It seems as though it begins almost as an illustration, but it's pretty obvious that it moves into the realm of a very descriptive narrative story that is being told to illustrate a spiritual truth. And he says in verse number five, which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. He from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. Listen to what the Lord's commentary is on this. He says, I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needed. There's an interesting word used there, and it's the word importunity. What does it mean to be importunate or to display importunity? The word literally means shamefacedness. It literally has the idea of a shameless behavior, either being shameless in your own behavior or your behavior being such that brings shame upon another. And what the Lord is saying here is that this man, though neither love nor friendship would drag that man out of bed to lend to his friend that has come to him in need, if he just stands there and keeps knocking long enough, it will grow to the place that the man is embarrassed to be so callous, disinterested, and cold-hearted towards another human being. And though friendship wouldn't cause it, embarrassment would. And that he will eventually arise and not just give him the three that he asked for, but he will give him as many as he needed. What is this all about? What's the Lord teaching here? Well, what's the emphasis? I would say it's this. He's trying to teach the truth of the perseverance of prayer. We could say this, why prayer works. Why does it work that this man comes to his friend and asks him? Because he does not cease at the first refusal. But he persists until his request breaks through. Now, some would take this passage and say, well, preacher, is that how God is? I just need to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying, and it doesn't matter what it is. I'll definitely get it because I will weary God with my coming unto Him. I will force Him. I will twist His arm. I will cause Him to have to answer. No, I don't believe that's a scriptural perspective on prayer. To do so is to make us the God in the situation and not Him. Rather, you'll find that God is using sort of a, a, a rationale tool or a literary tool here. We find it often employed in the Bible. And it's the concept of contrast. Oftentimes, you see it very much on display in the book of Proverbs where the Word of God will say, this is how a fool acts and this is how a wise man acts. 
And sometimes in the New Testament, when Christ spoke parables and talked to, to uh, those that were following Him, sometimes He would give an illustration, and He would give it not to say that God is like this, but to say if this principle is in force even in this situation, imagine how much more robust this principle is when it is applied to God Himself. I think that's what He has in mind here. Think with me for a moment. Just contrast this friend in this passage, the one that has the bread, Let me just say, I want to give you a piece of spiritual counsel. Try to make friends with people that have bread. See, some of y'all, if you don't know me, you think I'm saying something real deep and spiritual. But you notice the people that know me well just laugh because they know there ain't no depth to it. I just love bread. Somebody say amen. (laughs) This man with the bread. Let's contrast him. You see, this man is asking an individual, the the fellow that's in need, is asking the fellow that has the bread, and he is his friend, and he is asking him for some help. But you know, when we pray, we're not just talking to a friend. We're talking to a father. And so let's contrast this friend with this father. Well, I would say this, if perseverance wins the day in this story, How much more so in our prayer life with the Heavenly Father? Because one, He's not just a friend, but a Father indeed. You know, a friend typically feels no bearing of responsibility towards another individual. A friend does not necessarily feel as though they, if they cannot minister to every need that a friend of theirs has, that they have somehow failed in their duties. But I'll tell you as a father that if I felt like I couldn't provide for my children, if I felt like they went without, if I felt like there was something they really needed in their life and they couldn't have, I'd feel like a failure as a father. I feel very much indebted and responsible to them. I feel very much behooved to them. I feel very much as though they are my responsibility in life. You know, the same thing is true about our Heavenly Father and us. It's the reason that Christ told His disciples, Your Heavenly Father knoweth what you have need of before you even ask. He's paying attention to what you need. He's not just a friend, He's a Father. I would say not only does it encourage me to notice that when I pray, I'm talking not just to a friend but a Father, but the one I'm praying to, He already knows that I'm coming. Part of the reason that this fellow won't get out of bed is because his friend shows up at midnight and wants bread. And he says, I cannot rise. My children are in bed with me. The house and the door are shut up. In other words, saying, if I had known you were coming, I could have prepared for you. But I did not know you were coming, so I'm sorry. You've taken me by surprise. There's not a thing I can do for you. But you know, God always knows we're coming. Quoted a moment ago, He knoweth what we have need of before we even ask. I understand that prayer is not an informative activity for God. He's not reading his emails trying to figure out what business in the universe needs to be engaged in. He knows what you have need of. There's never a time you've come to the Lord that he hasn't already known before the worlds were ever formed what that need would be in your life. You've never surprised him with a need. You've never shocked him with a request. You've never scandalized him by coming to him and him not expecting what need you would have. Not only is he already knows we're coming, but I would say this, he's never troubled by our prayer. This fellow is annoyed that his friend has come and asked him at this late of hour. But you know, the Lord, he's never annoyed at us coming and asking him for things. I'm reminded when our Lord is coming and, and he's uh, getting ready to heal, I, I believe it's Jairus' daughter that he's getting ready to heal. And whenever they get close to the house, the servants come out and And they say, the the maid, she's dead already. And they ask this question. They say this, why troublest thou the master? Seeing the maid is dead already. Why troublest thou the master? Why are you bothering him? Why are you bothering him for? You know who I'm glad didn't say that? Jesus. He didn't look at him and say, what are you bothering me for? There's no hope and there's no help. Instead, he looks at him and he says, have faith, believe God. In other words, he says, you ain't troubling me. Let's go ahead on and I'll heal her. God did that very thing. You know, he's never troubled by our prayer. Not only that, he never shuts his door. (laughs) The door is shut. He never shuts his door. I'm aware there can be things that hinder our prayer. And certainly it's true that there's been many a time in my life I've not been on praying ground. But it's not because God has closed the windows of heaven and refused to listen to my prayer. It's because I have hindered my walk and my relationship with Him, not because He has been unwilling to hear me. And then, too, and this is what's funny to me. I mean, I'm just thinking as a dad. 
And I know what my answer would have been. Maybe I'm not a good father. I don't know. But I know what my answer would have been. If I had been there and, and I, and the fella, and he had knocked on the door and said, help me, I need bread, I need bread. And I, and, and my children are laying in bed with me and, and I'm getting ready to go to sleep. I wouldn't have said to him, I'm sorry, I can't. My children are in bed. I would have said, get up and go to the door and give him a loaf of bread. <laughs> and if it had been my dad, he would have said, bring me a cup of coffee on your way back. <laughs> my wife the other day, she asked me, she come in the house and, and she said, uh, she said, will you help me with groceries? Carrying groceries. And I didn't know. She had a big tote of stuff that was too heavy for the kiddos and everything. But she asked me, she said, would you help me with groceries? I said, no, that's what I got a 10-year-old for. Go get him. Make him do it. You know what I like about our Lord? His children are always awake. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, his means of ministering and working are always available. His servants, in the sense of his people, they're always present. His angels that minister upon His desires and upon our needs, they're always available. And even were none of that at His disposal, He still, as as the omnipotent God, always has the means to minister in our life. You see, the key to understanding this passage is not to, to say, well, this is how our Heavenly Father is. It's to say this, if perseverance works here, how much more would it work with a God that desires to hear and answer our prayers. He speaks in this passage about the contrast of the Father, but then we notice the confidence of the friend. You know, the friend, despite all this, he just keeps knocking because he believes if he knocks long enough, he'll get an answer and he'll get some help. You know, when we pray, we ought to pray with the confidence that God will work in our lives and in the matter. And it's not a matter of making him the cosmic butler demanding that he do as we deem fit. But it is about recognizing that if we have a real meaningful need in our life, there's nothing inappropriate in believing with confidence that a God that loved us enough to give his son to die for us would work in that matter. See, he teaches them first about the perseverance of prayer. But then look at verses 9 and 10. He then gives us a truth about the process of prayer. And he says this, I say unto you, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. What sense does he mean this in? Is he suggesting that everything we ask for is given? Is he suggesting everything we seek we find? Is he suggesting every door we knock upon is open? No, he tells us in verse 10. He says, for everyone that that asketh receive. He that seeketh find. And to him that knocketh, it shall be open. What's he teaching here about the process of prayer? Well, there's two things I'd notice, then we'll move on. The first, I want you to consider that a path is detailed here. Now, remember, he's not very far removed from the illustration he was giving just a moment earlier. And he was describing a man who came to the door and the first thing he did was ask. But he wasn't given what he asked for. So what then did he do? He sought for more help. He pled for more help. And that didn't get the job done. So what did he do? Well, he knocked until finally the door was open to him. You know, I think in many ways what he's doing is giving us a path as to how we are to engage with the Lord in the matter of prayer. Say, preacher, what is prayer? John R. Rice used to say prayer is asking and receiving. I understand there's a lot more depth to prayer than merely just asking and receiving. But you know what I found? Pretty much all my prayers all start the same way with asking. Asking. Something you don't understand, ask God about it. Is your time so precious that you can't spend it asking God about the matter? Something you need in your life, ask God for. What does James say? He says you have not because you ask not. So we begin by asking. Listen, you're facing a health problem, ask God to deal in the matter. Ask Him. You say, well, preacher, what if He doesn't? Well, you'll have wasted all of the millisecond it took you to ask, won't it? Well, if you've got a financial need in your life, what do I do about it, preacher? Well, ask God about it. You say, well, I thought about asking this friend or asking this person. And God might use that person, but I want to ask you first, have you asked God about it? Have you asked God to intervene in that situation? Got an issue with your family, with a loved one. Have you asked God about it? First thing you do is you ask, then what happens? Well, I don't know about you, but a lot of things I ask for, I'm not given. So you know what I then try to do? I then try to seek to find a reason as to why 
Sometimes there's a reason that is fairly obvious to me. I was just unwilling to see it. And then sometimes the reasons that God doesn't grant the things we ask can be rather obscure and difficult to wrap our mind around. But here's what I think we ought to do. We begin by saying, now, Lord, I need you to work in this situation and asking God to do so. And if he doesn't, our next question ought to be, now, Lord, why aren't you working in this? And what are you trying to teach me through the way that you're handling this matter? A great many times when God won't answer a prayer in our life, we get a lot of clarity if we just stop and take the time to ask why. We get impatient, we get petulant, we get angry, we sulk on God. Instead of stopping and asking, you know, a God that loves us the the way that He loves us, we ought to be able to have confidence that if He withholds something that we think would be a blessing in our life, there must be a reason for it. And so we first ask, and then if we don't receive, we seek. And then he says this, if you seek and you can find no reason to quit asking. If you seek and you can find no reason why God wouldn't. If you seek and God doesn't give you peace to stop, then what do you do? Well, you start knocking. And you keep knocking. And you keep knocking till God answers. You know, Paul practiced this principle. He talked about the thorn in the flesh that he had. And he says this, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice. What does he mean by that? Is he saying, well, you know, about two, three times I sat down to eat at the Cracker Barrel before I ate my eggs, I stopped and I said, Lord, it'd be nice if you'd take away this thorn in the flesh. Is that simply what it means? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is this, three times this thing went both on and off my prayer list. He's saying I would be so troubled by it that I go to God and purpose in my heart. I'm going to pray and I'm going to get God's help and I'm going to get God's answer and I'm going to get deliverance from the Lord. And he says I'd pray and I'd pray and I'd pray until God would just make it clear to me he's not going to take this away. And I'd take it off my prayer list. I'd say, all right, God, I'm not going to ask you to do it anymore. Then time would carry on and carrying the weight of that illness, that sickness, that burden. He'd finally come back to God again. He'd say, now, Lord, I know I said I wasn't going to pray about this, but, oh, the weight is heavy. God, I just pray you'd... And he'd begin to pray about it again. And he'd pray and he'd pray and he'd pray. And God wouldn't take it away. Three times he did that. And finally, God gave him an answer. And he said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. You know what Paul said? He said, I therefore glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says, I got my answer. But he says, I kept knocking until I did. I kept knocking until I did. You know what we'll do? We'll come down and say, God, do something in this matter. And then we'll get up and forget it before we're back in our pew. We'll come down and we'll say, God, I want you to change this matter. And then if he doesn't, we'll get angry at him and we'll sulk on him and we'll refuse to talk to him about the matter. It'll become a bone of contention in our relationship with him. But God tells us what to do. Go ahead and ask him for it. You might be amazed the things God would give you if you just ask for it. And then when he doesn't, you ought to... That's not when prayer ends. That's really when prayer is getting started. Because then you begin to seek him and say, now, Lord, why? Why couldn't I have this in my life? What is it about my life? And what is it about what you're doing in my life that suggests that this should not transpire or I cannot have this? And then the greatest lessons come from the knocking. As God bolsters and grows and develops our faith and shows us how that perseverance can win the day. A path is detailed. But then I would notice this. A practicality is denoted. Verse 10. This really gives clarity to what verse 9 is saying. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. He that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. The Lord says, you ought to ask. You know why you ought to ask? Because it's only those that ask that receive. You ought to seek. You know why you ought to seek? Because it's only those that seek that find. You ought to knock. You know why? Because it's only those that knock that have the doors open to them. What is missing from my prayer life and yours more than anything? Can I tell you? It is not some ability to pray in the fervency of the Spirit. That's not what's lacking in our prayer life. You know what's lacking in our prayer life? It's not some great grand theological wisdom that unlocks to us the great mysteries of God's cosmic uh, universe and, and the great secret untold language through which if we could speak to God, we would bend His ear. That's not what's missing. You know what's missing from most of our prayer life? is prayer. We talk a lot about having a prayer life. We talk a lot about praying. We even pray enough to justify our talking about it. 
but we don't really spend enough time in prayer. And he simply points out that the only kind of prayers that get no answer whatsoever are those that are either never prayed or given up on far too soon. There's a practicality that's denoted. And then I want you to notice a final thing. I'll be done. Look at verse 11 and 12. He then asks a question, gives an illustration. He says, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Here he's talking not just about the perseverance of prayer, not just about the process of prayer, but he's talking about the product of prayer. We could say it this way, that if if the first truth about the perseverance of prayer, if it's dealing with why prayer works, and the second about asking and receiving is dealing with how prayer works, then the last is he's dealing with what prayer brings about, what we can expect when we pray. And he gives three pictures to illustrate this truth. The first is he asks this, If a son asks of his father bread, would he give him a stone? Now, how would it feel if you asked for bread and got stones in return? I would say this, that for a hungry man, that'd be a great disappointment. Why does the Lord ask this question? He says, you're evil and you can give good gifts. He says, don't you think your heavenly father can give much greater gifts? He says, even your earthly relationship... Your, your fleshly relationship with a child is enough to, to uh, convince you to give them both what they desire and the best that you can possibly give them. Don't you think that your heavenly Father wants to give you the best that you can possibly bear? You know, sometimes I think we're afraid to pray because we're afraid when God answers we'll be disappointed in what we get. You ever got a gift you were disappointed in? Must have happened this year with how quiet you just got. Can I tell you this? If you get the will of God in your life, you won't be disappointed by it. It ain't God that gives stones in lieu of bread. It's the devil that does. It's God that turns the stones into bread if it's his will to do so. And the fact of the matter is, if you'll seek the Lord when he answers, you won't be disappointed. I'm not saying you'll expect what he gives you. I'm not saying you'll understand everything about the process. But I am saying you'll be far more satisfied with what God grants you and what God does in your life than you ever would what you could secure for yourself. He says this, would a a son asking a father, would he get a stone instead of bread? But then he asks a second question. He says, or if he asks a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? What's the idea here? That he would ask for fish food to nourish himself, but instead he would be given a dangerous animal or a dangerous creature. That when he goes to reach out for it, far from being helped by it, he would be hurt by it. Can I tell you this? You ought to pray about everything because the product of your prayer, not only will it not be disappointing, but it won't be damaging either. I remember years ago, I grew up in Christian school and we we had um, chapel services week by week by week and, and had preachers in. And I remember hearing a preacher illustrate a, a, a story. He was talking about someone praying for God to work in someone else's life. And, and they prayed and they said, God, do whatever it takes. And then he told this horrible story about how this person got into a terrible car wreck or got sick or whatever it was. I can't remember. But I, I remember as a child being left with the distinct impression. You'll even hear people say this sometime, that I had to be careful what I prayed for. Now, we say that sometimes, I think tongue-in-cheek. But you know, at the end of the day, you don't have to be careful what you pray for. I don't know if you realize this. You ain't praying to a lawyer. You're praying to a father. He ain't looking for some loophole to get you by. He wants to help you. I think sometimes, I don't know why people tell stories like that and have that concept and perspective. I don't know if it makes them seem tough or authoritative or like some Old Testament prophet. Can I tell you this? Hey, when we when we talk to our Heavenly Father, He is the God of all glory, but He's the one by which we cry, Abba, Father. And we're talking to one that, that wants to help us, that wants to give us what we need. 
We don't have to be afraid when we pray and say, Now, Lord, I don't know what it will take for this to happen, but God, I'll leave it in Your hands knowing You love me, knowing You care about me, knowing You have a plan and a will for my life. And I promise you this, when God answers, it won't be damaging to you. It doesn't mean that God won't bring things into your life that bring pain. It doesn't mean that there won't be times that God takes things from you that you don't want took from you. But it does mean at the end of the day, hey, listen, you'll be far better off than you would be if you did it in your own energy, in your own way. Then, sort of a second truth that falls along the same lines, he asks this in verse 12. Where if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? That's that's an interesting question, isn't it? I don't know about you, I, I guess I see how a man might confuse a, a fish and a serpent, especially if you're out fishing on the lake and it just bolts by real quick and you ain't sure what you just saw. And you go jumping out of that boat. I could see how that could happen. Not that it's ever happened to me, but I could see how that would happen to a man. But what a strange thing. Asking an egg and being given a scorpion. We ain't to that level in inflation yet, but why, why does he say that? What's well, interesting, and you know, some of these things, you, you, you take what you want to take from this and glean and get help however you want to from it. But commentators suggest this, that in that part of the world, that there was a scorpion that lived that would actually curl itself up and it was a light color and that that was part of its defense mechanism was that it could roll itself up into a ball and appear either as a stone or possibly as an egg as a way to conceal itself from other creatures and animals. And they could also even use this in hunting that it might be able to spring upon prey that would wander by. And so when the Lord asked this question, if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? His hearers wouldn't have looked at him and, 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 and scrunched their nose and wondered what he was talking about. They would have immediately thought of the great danger that probably they had even been taught when they were children by their parents from a young age that when you reach out to go pick up that stone, you better look twice because it could be a scorpion that could sting you. In other words, it might trick you. You might think you're getting something good when actually you're getting something bad. You might think you're laying your hand on something that's safe, when you're actually laying your hand on something that'll hurt you. You know, it reminds me of this. Hey, listen, the Lord, if we'll pray what He gives us, it won't be disappointing and it won't be damaging, but number three, it won't be deceptive. He's not trying to trick us. He's not trying to bamboozle us into something. You'll never have a more honest relationship in your life than you have with God in the prayer closet. It is literally the most transparent relationship that you'll ever have. It is completely, or it should be, if it's not, it's on you and not Him, because it should be entirely without pretense and entirely without posturing. And when we pray and ask God to work in a matter in our life, We don't have to venture into it with the perspective that around every corner lay some bear trap ready to snap itself around our leg. We can walk with boldness and confidence if we're holding hands with God and walking in obedience to His Word and His will for our life. Listen, the things, His promises are not mirages. They are not fake. They are not false. He's not trying to lure us into a place of obedience only to then bait and switch with what He has allowed for us. No, instead, hey, listen, when we pray, we can have confidence that what He's giving us is the absolute best for our life. You'd be amazed the peace of mind you'd have if you'd convince yourself that what God desires for you is what's best. How much heartache is present in your life and mine because we have been convinced by the devil and the flesh and the world that what God has for us is not the very best. It's the same lie he's been telling since the Garden of Eden. Yea, hath God said? He doth know that in the day that ye thereof you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You know what Satan was saying? God's trying to hold something back on you. And he's been telling that lie ever since the Garden. Telling you that somehow God is holding out on you. That somehow He is, is holding back from you. That, that there's more out there and better out there. And God just won't allow you to have it. You'd be amazed the liberty you'd have, the peace of mind you'd have, if you just settle yourself on this one scriptural truth regarding your prayer life. What God wants for me is the best. It ain't just the best for Him. It's the best for me. It's not just the best for others. It's the best for me. What did He teach them? They said, Lord, 
teach us to pray. He gave him a little pattern for prayer. He says, these are some things you ought to be praying about. You ought to first put God in His right place when you pray. And then you ought to pray and yeah, you ought to ask God to provide for you and to protect you and, and to, to pardon you of where you've gone wrong and done wrong. And then he taught them these three truths. And what are they? Well, he taught them why prayer works. That as we seek God and desire and petition His help, as we invoke Him and involve Him in the matter, we are involving the one who is able and capable and cares far more than anyone else ever does. That if we'll just ask Him, He'll answer. What the process is. You say, but preacher, I prayed about that. I asked God about that matter. Well, what was His answer? And if you immediately, all you can do is look back at me with a blank stare, then you ought to go back and pray about it again. Preacher, i got this health problem. Have you prayed about it? Yeah, I prayed about it. I, I, I talked to the Lord about it. What did he say? If you got no answer, go back and talk to him again about it. I asked him about my marriage. Some things we're going through, preacher, and I, I, I don't understand it. Well, what did he say? Well, I don't know, preacher. Well, go back and ask him about it again. Preacher, I asked God about my children. I don't understand why they've done what they've done. I don't understand how to fix it. What did he say about it? Well, I don't really know. Go back and ask him again about it. Don't give up on it. Keep praying. Keep seeking. Keep asking. Keep knocking. It's only those that ask that receive. It's only those that seek that find. It's only those that knock that have the doors open to them. Well, preacher, what can I expect? I can't tell you what your answer is going to look like, but I can tell you this. You won't be disappointed with it. You won't be hurt by it. You won't be tricked by it. There's nothing to be scared of in the matter of prayer. The greatest fear that we ought to have in prayer is not that prayer will fail us, but that we'll fail prayer. It's not that prayer won't be enough, but it's that we won't pray enough. You ought to go and you ought to ask Him and you ought to seek Him. And I hope this coming year, 2024, I hope it's a year of prayer for you. I hope it's a year of prayer for me where I go deeper in my prayer life, where I go farther in my prayer life. For I don't neglect it as I've been so wont to do in my life. I know you've never done that, but I'll confess it. Neglect it as I've been wont to do in my life. Ignore it as I've been wont to do. And I don't want to do that in 2024. I would say this just like the disciples did. Lord, teach us to pray. And then I have to reply back and say, now, Lord, I'll be teachable if you'll just teach me. Let's bow together. A musician will come and play. And I want to give you an opportunity to come to the Lord in prayer. There could be a hundred things you have to pray over about. I don't know, but I know this. We are all facing a new year ahead of us. We're making choices as to what we're going to do with that new year, how we're going to behave and how we're going to live. I pray that you would tonight just open your heart to the Lord and allow him to have his will and way and meet him in this altar if he's dealt with your heart. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.